Anyway, did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Everybody, uh, are you going to be able to stay awake through the sermon or are you still digesting? What do you think? I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It would not be the first time somebody fell asleep during the sermon, especially on a Thanksgiving weekend. We had a relatively quiet Thanksgiving weekend at our house. Um, We didn't have any kids or grandkids with us this year for Thanksgiving, so um, like nothing is broken in the house now, so that was good. Um, We we had this sort of low-key kind of thing. We actually went out to dinner. We didn't even stay home and, you know, do all the dishes and all that kind of stuff, because I'm sure you guys can imagine Thanksgiving for me is just slaving in the kitchen the whole time while Christy watches football. So it was, was kind of nice for me not to do that. But, um, and, then, and then this time of year, all of these sort of memories come flooding back, right? And Christy sends me this text yesterday and it is just a stream of 10 years worth of our children's pictures with Santa Claus. And I know, right? They used to be cute once, my kids, when they were little. And, and you know, it just starts with one kid on Santa's lap, and then it becomes two, and then it becomes three, and you just watch them get older. And, uh, and I was just sort of bombarded with memories that made me sort of just miss those days. Those of you who are raising little ones at home, I know you're like, I'll trade you, but listen, um, it makes me miss those days quite a bit. I used to love chasing those kids around. I used to love playing games with them. It was great when they were at home. Um, we used to play hide and seek, you know, with the kids. And I would say, okay, um, uh, you guys go ahead and hide, and then I would forget to seek, and that, that's a good 10 minutes worth of quiet in the house right there. Um, then they, they would catch on to that, then they would say, okay, um, th- this time you hide. So I would like sneak into the garage, get in the car, open the door, drive to Starbucks. That, that also is a good half hour of quiet right there. So, um, and then... Eventually, we would find each other, you know, and there'd be giggles and tickling and all that stuff, and, and uh, it just reminded me of those days when the kids were little and playing hide-and-seek. The thing is that in, in life, we play hide-and-seek with much, much higher stakes, and today, we're going to get to this picture in the story of David's life that is going to be a very high-stakes version of the game of hide and seek. And um, the stakes are incredibly high. And so let me get you caught up a little bit. Remember as we're moving through the book of 2 Samuel that uh, David has become king now. He is the king of all of Israel, united Judah and Israel together. Saul and his sons were killed on the battlefield. Um, and David has ascended the throne. The ark is now back in Jerusalem. We saw that last week. Um, So there's a return to God as the focal point of life in Israel, Um, and everyone in Saul's family is either dead or they have fled because, as we talked about last week, when there is a new king and it's not a succession of father to son, then there's always the danger that the old king's family is gonna get wiped out so there'll be no one claiming the throne. And so there's nobody around now that is part of Saul's family. But David remembers that he has made some promises. He made a promise to Jonathan. They entered into a covenant together. 
And part of that covenant was he promised Jonathan that he would always take care of Jonathan's family. Later, when Saul finally comes to him and says, listen, I realize God has chosen you and not me to be the king and that eventually you're gonna take the throne, I'm asking you, just promise me this, that you will see to it that my family is taken care of because he's afraid that what happens to former king's families is gonna happen to his family. And David has made him that promise as well. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story in 2 Samuel, go to your Old Testament, the book of 2 Samuel, Samuel, and we're in chapter nine this morning, and so we're gonna pick up the story there, and we're gonna meet a relatively unknown Bible character who many of you have probably never heard of. He never made like a puppet status in Sunday school. He never got a flannel graph of him. Uh, in fact, most of us have not heard his name, and if you have heard his name, you almost certainly don't know how to pronounce it correctly. But don't worry, um, I don't know how to pronounce it correctly either, but I will pretend that I do, and you'll be like, wow, all of that seminary really paid off, that's impressive. Um, but we're gonna, have we're gonna meet this guy that you have probably never heard of, but his story may turn out to be the most significant chapter in the life of David that we're gonna look at. And so I wanna encourage you to just uh, zoom in with me as we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter nine, beginning in verse one. Then David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him David, uh, and, they, and, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, is there not yet anyone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who was crippled in both feet. So aha, there's still one son. Jonathan has a son and he is still alive. And, and he hasn't been named yet. We're gonna get to that in a minute. We're gonna find out that his name is Mephibosheth. See how I said that like I know how you say it? He said, we're gonna call him Mephibosheth. I couldn't even come up with anything short to call him, like Meph or Ib or Sheth, I don't know. So we're gonna call him Mephibosheth. And, and we haven't heard his name yet because Ziba doesn't mention his name right away because his name, as weird as it is, is not the thing that stands out about him. The thing that stands out about him is that he is severely disabled. That's what everybody notices first. The scripture says he is crippled in both feet. So we don't even know his name yet, but we know he's crippled in both feet. Now, this is not the first time we meet this young man. If you had been reading through 2 Samuel, you would have run across his name in chapter four. So turn a couple pages back to the left to 2 Samuel chapter four. Let's see the introduction that we get to him. In 2 Samuel chapter four and verse four, it says, now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old, when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, <clears throat> and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, so 
When the news of Saul and Jonathan got to the palace, what news is that? The news that they had been killed on the battlefield. Once it was clear that Saul and Jonathan and some of Saul's other sons were killed on the battlefield, that was clear then to everybody, this is the time David is gonna ascend to the throne. And so the family of Saul and everybody who worked in the palace, they panicked and said, we've gotta get out of here because if he shows up, we're dead. And so it says this nurse scoops up this little five-year-old boy and begins to run. And I don't know if she fell and fell on top of him or if she dropped him or exactly what happened, but it says the result of that fall is that he is now crippled in both feet. So we've heard his name twice now and both times what we've been told about him is he's crippled in both feet, okay? Make a note. And then we get back to chapter nine and we're gonna see more. So he fell, and as a result, he ends up crippled in both feet. It's it's a sad story. But what may be sadder than his disability is the fact that his disability seems to define him in the eyes of everyone who knows him. Literally, every time he is mentioned in the Bible, we're told he's crippled in both feet. It never goes away. And so we've now heard his name twice. Both times it was followed by the fact that he's crippled in both feet. A third time we're gonna hear that he was crippled in both feet. Mephibosheth wasn't known for who he was. He was known for what was wrong with him. And some of us can relate to that. Yeah. And we just feel like, you know what? Um, it's, it's, my, it's my past. It, it, you know, my reputation, it just precedes me. Uh, it's the fact that I'm an ex-con, it's the fact that I'm divorced, it's the fact that um, I'm in a racial minority, it's the fact that I'm a school dropout, it's the fact that I failed in my career, it's the fact that I struggled. That's what people know about me. And we feel caught in that. He was known for what was wrong with him. And interestingly, I started thinking about this, never really gave it any thought before. Started thinking about this, and I went, you know what? This is true of all kinds of people that we meet in the Bible. In fact, the New Testament is filled with examples of people whose names we have no idea what they are, but we know exactly what is wrong with them. For example, what's the name of the woman caught in adultery? Her name is woman caught in adultery. (laughs) That's everything we know. She's, she was caught in adultery. We know about her sin, right? What is the name of any, name, give me one name of any of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed in the wilderness. We have no idea what their names are. We just know they had leprosy, right? Or, or the demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs, who Jesus cast all those demons out of, they went into the swine. What was his name? Anybody know? Nope. We know he was a demon-possessed man. Um, and, and it just goes on and on. How about the guy who uh, his friends had to carry the pallet to, and cut a hole in the roof and drop him down, right? We don't know his name. We just know he was crippled. Or, or, or the widow of Nain, she was on her way to the funeral procession. They were carrying the casket of her son and Jesus stopped and raised her son from the dead. We don't know her name. We don't know her son's name. We just know what Jesus did for them to get them out of the trouble they were in. These people are known by their problems. The list goes on and on. But I want you to know something right now. 
When all the world can see is our weakness, God knows our name. He knows us. He knows us as individuals. He cares about us as individuals. He sees a future for us that is not marked by our failures, our weaknesses, our mistakes, and our sins. That's the God that we're talking about today. Anyway, back to 2 Samuel. Mephibosheth is known by his infirmity. But David wants to show him kindness. The problem is he's not around. Where is he? So we pick it up in verse four, chapter nine, 2 Samuel nine. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Two more people you probably never heard of and a place you've probably never heard of. Mm-hmm. Mephibosheth is in Lodabar. Where is that? Well, if you could get um, you know, on your phone, you get your little Google Maps and go back to ancient times and you could zoom out and zoom out and zoom out and zoom out and you'd find this tiny little hamlet in the middle of the desert with nothing near it. It's called Lodabar. And literally, I looked it up. In, in Hebrew, the name means no place. Talk about the middle of nowhere. This is no place. Today we might call it no man's land or something like that, right? And, and that's where the king's grandson is. Why would a member of the royal family be holed up in some cabin in the middle of the desert with nothing around him? Because he's a fugitive. He had fled for his life. He knew what happens to family members of the previous king when a new king comes to power and he figured, I've got to lay low. He knew enough to know that and what better place to hide than no place. So he goes to a place called no place for the ultimate game of hide and seek. And Mephibosheth has found a hiding place where he's sure that nobody is going to look. But David was looking for him. And his days in Lodabar were numbered. Now we're not given any of these details, but I, you know, I, I imagine this stuff. And I can just picture, once he comes there, he realizes that I've got to have a hiding place if ever the authorities come looking for me. I can only imagine that somewhere in this house, he's like, where can I hide? And there would be like um, a staircase and a wall by the staircase. There's a bookcase against that wall. If you move the bookcase, there's a secret door. And behind the secret door, you can go under the stairs. You can hide there. We put the bookcase back. Nobody will ever find you. There must have been some plan in place for him to hide just in case. On the off chance that somehow, some way, the cops ever come through town. And you can imagine that he would have never thought in a million years that that would happen. And I would imagine that he wasn't the least bit concerned when they looked out on the horizon they saw the dust rising up from the road as if there's some sort of chariots or vehicles or horses coming along the pathway until somebody who's a lookout yells, it's the chariots of the king. And you can imagine how quickly he would need to get to his hiding place. But here's the problem. I don't know if I mentioned this before. He's crippled in both feet. There's no time to hide. 
And by the time the authorities show up, they've caught him red-handed. Look at verse five. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. <clears throat> now, Lodabar is a ways from Jerusalem. He's got to ride back. We don't get anything of this, but all you have to do is be human to go, what do you suppose was going through his mind the whole time? He knows what happens to members of the king's family. He knows what he's on his way to. He's probably wondering, are they gonna torture me or are they just gonna kill me? The tradition at that time would be to remove his head, put it on a stake outside the city wall and put his body on the wall for the birds and the animals to eat. That's your way of dishonoring the former king. And he's seen it happen. He knows that's what they do. I would imagine there's some terror. I imagine he's thinking, is there any way for me to escape? But oh yeah, I'm crippled in both feet. <clears throat> he probably thinks, well, I, I, I guess I'll throw myself at the mercy of the king. Maybe I could offer to become a slave. Maybe he'll show some mercy. But I guarantee you, whatever he thought was gonna happen, he was not ready for what was about to happen to him. Pick it up in verse six. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, here's your servant. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I've given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that uh, your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands, his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. That's the end of the story. We're not gonna hear any more about him. The last we're told is the same as the first we're told. He is lame in both feet. The, the story is going along beautifully. He's living happily ever after, right? It ends well. Everybody's happy as they leave the theater and throw their popcorn bins in the trash and they walk out talking about how wonderful this is and somebody says, yeah, but he was lame in both feet. It's interesting to me. He, he gets completely restored. Everything that belonged to his grandfather, the king, now belongs to him. He's got servants and land and wealth and respect. He eats at the king's table. 
He's been given everything. But his, his symbol of weakness is still there. He's still known for being lame in both feet. Why do they keep mentioning this? Why rub it in so much? I don't think anybody's rubbing it in. I think we're making a very, very important point. Mephibosheth was completely unable to help himself. He couldn't fix his problem. The best he could do was hide in no man's land. Every good thing that he received at this point at the end of his story, he got as a result of the grace and kindness of King David. That was it, just mercy. He went from being a crippled fugitive, living in the middle of nowhere, to being a rich man with servants and land who ate at the king's table and was counted among the king's sons. The one from whom he was hiding was really only trying to bless him. Does that story sound familiar at all? This is foreshadowing that points forward to the gospels. For there will be one who comes who is known as the son of God. He will also be known as the son of man. And thirdly, he will be known as the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he would one day come because my friends, you and I are Mephibosheth. Every one of us has been crippled by the fall. And to our our credit or discredits, we all have the same experience. Our first instinct, where God is concerned, is to hide from God. And that's not new. It's not just you and me. That's been happening since the Garden of Eden when sin first entered the picture, right? What happens? They eat the forbidden fruit. They suddenly are aware of their nakedness. They are now ashamed. They try to cover themselves up so they can hide from one another. And when they hear God in the garden, what do they do? They hide from God. And every time I talk about this, I have to point out how absurdly ridiculous it is to hide from an all-knowing God. What in the world were they thinking? I'm gonna hide from a God who sees everything, knows everything, and is everywhere. What in the world? How foolish would a person have to be to try to hide from a God like that? Hmm. Hmm. It seems so ridiculous to hide from God, but let's be honest, we've all done it. Some of us are probably doing it right now. We don't want to face the king. We know we don't deserve his blessings. We fear his punishment, so we hide. But what we may not realize is that there is no way to hide from this king. The Bible says that one day, each one of us is going to have to stand before him, and I promise you there will be no place to hide then. You can't hide from an all-knowing God. And the sooner that we accept that reality, the sooner we're in a position to actually experience his blessings. But some of us have a pretty thick head. 
One day, we will all stand before his throne. And so that's number one. You can't hide from an all-knowing God. But there's a second issue we need to realize as well. God is not seeking you so he can harm you. He is seeking you so that he can adopt you and have you as his son or daughter at the feast. That's why he's looking for you. God knows that we are all broken and crippled. God knows that every one of us has got something or a list of some things that we're ashamed of, that we're afraid of, that we're hurt by, that has been a mark on our lives and we feel like somebody's gonna notice, eventually they're gonna find it and we're just trying to hide. He knows that we have no excuse. He knows that we can't save ourselves. That is why he sent his son to pay the price. Most of us know this verse. In John chapter three, verse 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And most of us don't know the next verse that says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. Why did he send Jesus in the first place? Did he send him as a judge and executioner? No, he sent him as a sacrificial lamb. Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. Listen, if God wanted to destroy you or me, he could have done it already, amen? I mean, what, what would stop him? All of our attempts to hide from God, to try to avoid him, they proved to be completely futile. God knows who you are. He knows you by name. He knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. Every detail God knows. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, he knows what you're up to, and he knows all about your crippling fall. And there will come a day, there will, when he will pronounce judgment upon all sinners who refuse to bow at his throne. That day's coming. And when you think about it that way, you say, well, why wait? I I, I can imagine that must have been what went through Mephibosheth's head in that long chariot ride from Lodabar to Jerusalem. I just, let's get this over with. Just, if he would have had a chance to kill himself on the trip, he probably would have. Figured it'd be easier. Why wait? Why not just get this over with? If God is going to judge sinners, and the scripture is very clear, he will. If God is going to judge sinners, why wait? Let me give you the short answer and then I'll give you a verse. He waits because he loves us. And, And I want you to turn all the way to the back of your New Testament to the book of 2 Peter. It's almost to the very end. You've got 1 Peter, then 2 Peter, and then you get to 1 John. I want you to go to 2 Peter chapter three, and I want you to see this for yourself. Peter writes about this extensively, but we're just gonna look at these two verses, um, starting in verse eight. Peter says this, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And then he gets to the point, verse nine. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the very last person to finally bow their knee. He's waiting patiently, the way a parent waits for their child to respond to their love. He's waiting patiently. Because judgment will come. And his timing will be perfect. But in the meantime, he's out looking for those who are hiding. The scripture says, Jesus himself said, here's my mission statement. He said, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He tried to describe himself as a good shepherd. And he said, let me tell you a story. There's this shepherd, he's got 100 sheep that he has to care for. And when he counts them all, he sees there's only 99. And he realizes that one has wandered off. And what does he do? He takes the 99, puts them in the sheepfold to make sure that they're safe, and then leaves them alone and goes out and seeks through the wilderness until he finds that lamb that has wandered off and he picks it up and he carries it back. Why? Because he loves the one who wandered every, much as he, every bit as much as he loves the ones who are gathered. And guys, as Christians, we need to be reminded of this. This is the heart of our God. It is so easy for us. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been in the church for years and decades, maybe you're just comfortable around other Christians and you're just, you just enjoy fellowship and, and the word of God and worship and all those kind of things. There's nothing like being with God's people on a Sunday morning. That's how I feel. But you know what? Beyond these walls, you know what? There's millions of people who are still wandering and hiding. And I'm gonna tell you this, he loves them as much as he loves us. And he will go searching. And so we gotta ask ourselves, have I been hiding from God? Maybe just hoping to avoid the judgment that I know I deserve. Some of us are aware of something that is going on in our life that we know God doesn't approve of, and so our way of hiding from God is we just don't bring it up. We just don't talk to him about that part of our life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to him about all the prayer requests on the prayer sheet. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for my kids and the people that I love, but when it comes to this area of my life that I've been kind of keeping in the dark, I'm just not gonna talk to him about that. Maybe he won't notice. Have I been hiding from God? Did you think that if you just got far enough from God, he might forget about you? Well, I have good news. Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and goes looking for the one. You can't get so far that he doesn't notice you. God is calling to each of us. But it's not so he can punish us. It's so he can make you his child and shower his blessings upon you and you too can join him at the feast. To God, you're not simply known by your weaknesses and failures. He knows you by name. He has a plan for your life. 
he knows what your life could look like on the other side of that thing that has been identifying you for so long. He has a plan for you and he wants to make you his child. And you know what? You can't earn that. I don't know how religious you are, but you ain't religious enough to impress God. I don't know how many good works you've done, but I can promise you, you haven't done enough good works to wash away the sin that is in your life. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's purely an act of the grace of God. The only question is whether you will accept his grace and join him at the feast or whether you'll keep hiding and pretending that you can make it on your own. I'm sure that from this point forward, Mephibosheth never missed a Sabbath dinner at David's table. I guarantee you that when everybody gathered for the big formal meal like we do on Thanksgiving, that, that every Sabbath they gathered for that special meal and it was probably in the palace in this big dining hall with the long table and the big chairs and all the candelabras and all the beautiful setting and every one of the king's sons and daughters was there, and all of the high-ranking officials in the kingdom were there every Sabbath for that meal. And they would come, and each one with their assigned seat, they would sit at the table, and they would wait for Mephibosheth to show up. And then in the distance, they would hear the sound of those wooden crutches on the stone tiles as little by little by little, he slowly made his way to the seat next to the king and joined in the feast. I love the fact that at the end of his story, it still says he was crippled in both feet. Because guys, we need to remember this. When the Lord comes into your life, he will transform you the scripture doesn't say he will reform you. It says he will transform you. It doesn't say he will make you a better version of your old self. It says you will be born again into a new life in Christ, right? And so you are transformed at that point. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but some of the old stuff is still here. I, I, I haven't come, my hair never grew back. I, I thought, well, if this is gonna work, come on. I still got some of the marks of the old self. He changes us on the inside, but he doesn't answer all of our requests. He doesn't fix everything that is broken about us. He makes us new. And Mephibosheth would always walk with crutches. He would always be known as the man who was crippled in both feet and still received the mercy of the king. That's what I wanna be known as. I wanna be known as the man who was crippled and received the mercy of the king. Not because I deserve it, not because I have it coming, but because he's a great God. Even broken people are welcome at the king's table. It's because of his amazing grace. And 
and the rest should be obvious. The scripture says that all of us have been crippled by the fall. The scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us has the courage to stand here and go, no, no, I'm the exception to that rule, right? We have all sinned. We know that. We still struggle with sin on a daily basis. And, and the scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but it doesn't stop there. It says the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But then it goes farther and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He sent his son to save us. That's the beautiful story. And, and if you haven't heard that story before, praise God you're hearing it today. Because there is no more important story. There is nothing more that you need to know except that you are crippled, you are broken, you are unable to save yourself, and he loves you anyway. So he went all the way to no man's land to find you, to rescue you, to adopt you, to make you his child and give you a seat at the table of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That, my friends, is the gospel. Have you experienced that relationship with the king? If you haven't, I just want to encourage you today. There's a reason you're hearing this. It's because you're one of those ones that he went looking for. And today you're hearing the truth of the gospel because he wants you to finally lift up your hands, accept his grace, and let him carry you home. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. And we keep searching after goodness and mercy and his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Maybe for some of us it's time to finally put up our hands and say, I I surrender. I accept your free forgiveness. Make me new. Give me life in Christ. If that's you, it happens this simply. He knows your heart. It's not some magic words that you say or some way that you have to join a church or some uh, religious hoops that you have to jump through. It's simply a matter of surrender. Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I confess that I am broken because of the fall. I confess that my sin has separated me from you. I confess that I cannot help myself and so I call upon you. I accept your free gift. I know that Jesus died on the cross to set me free. Lord, come into my life and be my Lord from this day forward. And the scripture says that when in your heart you give yourself to him in that way, he scoops you up and gives you a seat at the table. That's his promise. But some of us, grown up around church, some of us have been religious folks for a long time. Some of us have read our Bibles front to back and we've heard these stories again and again and we know the gospel that was just explained. But still there's this little closet in our lives where we're still hiding from God. Some stuff we're still holding on to. Lord, I'm gonna handle this part of my life. I'll I'll give you the other 90%, but this 10% is mine. I don't really trust you with it. I'm gonna trust myself with it. Listen, how much experience do you have to have with yourself to know you can trust God more than you can trust you? Isn't it about time that we throw open the door to those closets and say, Lord, you can have this room too. Clean it up. 
change it, transform it. God, I'm gonna let you run my whole life. I'm going to surrender. I'm gonna fall prostrate at your feet. And I'm gonna say, I am your servant. You are my Lord. Do with me what you will. And then watch as he picks you up and gives you a seat at the king's table. Let's bow our heads and pray together. And I, and I wanna just give you a moment to reflect. Wherever you might be in your journey, in your relationship with God, if you need to during this time confess your sin, invite Jesus into your heart, you can do that quietly in the, in the quiet of your own heart. Ask him to be your savior, ask him to be your Lord, accept what he's already done for you, stop running, stop hiding. You just need to have a conversation with him, you can do that right now. Lord, I know I'm a sinner, I know I can't save myself. I, I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin. I know he's the son of God. Come into my life, be my Lord, transform me. And for those of us who have done that some time ago, but we have to admit there's still that little box, that, that little closet, maybe a whole big room of stuff that we haven't really invited Jesus into yet. I'm gonna give you a chance just between you and God, what do you need to invite him into? What do you need to relinquish control over and let him be the king of kings? He's searching for you, not so he can punish you, so he can give you abundant life. And so Father, we, we come to you now because Jesus has made a way for us to do that. Incredibly humbled, thankful for the price you've paid for us, Lord. Aware that in and of ourselves we have nothing to offer you, we're not good enough, but we're just not willing to hide anymore. We just ask you, God, to just come to where we are, scoop us up in your arms and carry us home. I pray for anyone right now within the sound of my voice who is carrying the scar tissue of what they were known as before. I pray, God, that you would set them free and that they would be known as a child of God. Thank you that you know our names. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Set us free, Lord. Carry us home, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Listen, before I let you go, let me just say this. Um, if the Lord's working in your heart, don't, don't just leave that here and then forget about it. If you're a person who has never yet given your life to Christ and you did that this morning, you need to talk to somebody about that. You need to let somebody know, somebody who, who brought you, come and see me, one of the leaders here at the church, anybody you know who's a follower of Christ because we have to link arms and support each other in this, right? You need support. 
Uh, and it, if, you're, if you're dealing with something where you're like, there's this area of my life, I'm just not sure how to let go. Like, you need the body of Christ to help support you in that. You might need to make a counseling appointment. You might need to just sit down with a close friend and just get honest and real and get some accountability in your life. Whatever the case is, I just wanna encourage you. Let's not just take the gospel message that we just heard, leave it here and go, isn't that nice? But let's let it transform our lives every moment of every day. And on that note, I bid you have a wonderful week. God bless you.